The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day to you, Stephen. This is a busy, busy show today. We've got something we've been waiting for 14 months to talk about. I know, and it's incredible. We're, we're referring to the uh, full complement of the Supreme Court because with the appointment of Justice Gorsuch, we now have nine Supreme Court justices. And as you alluded to, 14 months is a long haul to be going without a full complement of justices. So we can talk about the topics uh, involving what it means to greet a new justice, what is that uh, reception going to be like, what happens behind the scenes, and then move to the topic of what cases are going to be decided. That's exactly right. And and let's just get the, the let's get a little bit of technical aspect of the law out of the way, which we, we talked about 14 months. We've had we've had the show before when we were talking about what happened in the gap, and, and some people may disagree with this, but let me lay out very briefly, because I want to move on to the cases themselves, let's talk briefly what went on for 14 months. So back in February of 2016, Antonin Scalia passed away unexpectedly. He was not the the oldest of the justices. He was not one that was expected to die at this point in time. So it really caught everybody by surprise. And after that shock rolled off, and particularly since he's the a very holds a very unique part in the court, being very conservative, a textualist, an originalist, had a very distinct voice on the court. Uh, then President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill the position. And here's where you and I, I know in the past, have slightly disagreed. But my take on it is for 293 days, the Senate of the United States Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, violated the Constitution. For 293 days, they failed to provide the advice and consent that's required under the Constitution when a president sends them a nominee. Then, after that 293 days, Trump was elected. Uh, Garland's nomination goes away because he was not approved. The next president has his say-so. And then, 
Neil Gorsuch was was nominated. And then we had a light speed rush to have him appointed. Uh, None of the disagreement, I think, really was centered around his qualifications as a justice. He's an eminent jurist from Colorado. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But I believe what the everyone watched was there is some payback when Congress doesn't respond to their duties for 293 days. Uh, Neil Gorsuch had a bit of a bumpy road coming through the Senate. And in fact, the Senate had to change a rule that's been around since 1917 in order to have him confirmed. So there's my political science diatribe for the morning to kick us off. And well said. No, well said, Mitch, and I appreciate that because that recital is important, and I think you did a good job capturing the history and the 293 days. And I think what I'll share, Mitch, rather than even tipping my hand in terms of where I fall politically and and whether or not the delay was warranted or not, uh, especially with regards to uh, Justice uh, Merrick Garland, it. It did keep us at bay, and I say us at bay because it's kept uh, decisions from being made that have been sitting and, quite frankly, festering for a long time. And I think we'll see that there's matters that are quite ripe and ready to be decided, very likely. And I'm going to call it unfortunate uh, that there was such a long, long gap. Uh, But I am pleased that we are now at full strength in the Supreme Court. And I think you made a good point on the qualifications of Gorsuch. And I can also add that uh, Merrick Garland was also quite, quite qualified also. Yeah. And one thing to, to remember is that there were some cases that were decided during the time that the court was split four to four. And the Supreme Court has broad powers. They can actually choose to rehear any case that they heard before but have yet to render an opinion on that was during the 4-4 time. So that uh, the new Justice Gorsuch cannot write on the opinions of something that he did not hear. He was not sitting on the bench when it it came. But, But the court on their own motion can decide to call those matters back, have them argue it again with all nine justices, and then he could participate. So that'll be interesting to see whether they choose to do that. It, it's a bit of an extraordinary step, but it'll be interesting to see if they, they can do that. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mitch. And the other thing that goes along with that same issue is that I think the justices can hold back on certain decisions, uh, recognizing the need to be in a full complement uh, and have all nine justices, and, and it may well be that they they certainly welcome the addition of of Justice Gorsuch uh, for niche specific cases. I, I think that kind of thing happens also, and it, it's you know we we'd like to talk a little bit about what the the first day is like because I I think today's the day that they gather in conference and they vote on cases that are potentially under review and it takes four of the justices to agree to hear a case. So um, today will be the, uh, I think the maiden entry for Justice Gorsuch and and it'll be interesting to talk about what his day is going to be like. Well, I found it very interesting to to read the articles about what what the junior justice has to do, and they yeah. they talk about it in terms of of, of almost hazing. I that's uh, a good call, Mitch. I actually thought of hazing too. Oh, I, it's it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around hazing a justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, but every 
every organization has its hierarchy and he is now the junior person in on the team and and evidently there are two very specific things that the most junior person must do and we talked a little about it at at the before we started the show right so he has to quote unquote open and close the door yeah right? yeah there's a there's a role that i think loosely goes by the the moniker or the name doorkeeper um, right. of course it's got you know, a formal definition, but I mean, just hearing the doorkeeper uh, <laughs> label kind of does make you think of, uh, oh boy, this has got to be like um, quite an initiation process. But doorkeeper actually is a role where, whereby uh, that justice is receiving incoming information and actually sorting through a lot of materials that I think will become relevant in the vetting process of cases, uh, but almost a secretarial role in some ways on behalf of the other eight justices. Yeah, and, that's right. And then there's the physical role as well, because evidently they, they have a private inner sanctum, which that doesn't surprise me at all, in which they have certain meetings in which it's only the justices. You know, None of their uh, research attorneys are with them. No one else is in the room. It's right, just- no, no subordinates, right. Exactly. And the most junior justice has the chair closest to the the actual physical door where individuals would bring in, if they need to bring them a message or bring something, they knock on the door. And the most junior justice is the one that has to get up from the table and go over and open the door to see what they want. Yeah. Yeah, so it 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 reads almost like there's a uh, a security component to it, also. You know, and, uh, the other one I loved, which I I did chuckle, is they they talk about the most junior justice has cafeteria duty, right? Wow. And I'm I'm thinking, wow, what what could that be? And then they talk about the fact that that the most junior justice has administrative roles because we forget that the Supreme Court has a lot of employees. Yeah, you know, there, there's there's administrative staff. There's there's all of the folks, like you said, the mail room. I mean, there's all kinds of things, and they have an actual cafeteria that all of the people who work in the Supreme Court get get to partake. And one justice is assigned the duty to deal with any issues or complaints that come up with the cafeteria, and it's the most junior justice. By, yeah. by the way, Mitch, good morning. This is Michael, and I wanted to let you know that cafeteria duty, in my experience at the court, is non-trivial because the court, for whatever reason, makes the best banana pudding with vanilla wafers <laughs> of, of any jurisdiction in the United States, and it goes quick. So there's a frequent complaint. There. <laughs> Welcome, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen's our frequent guest co-host. Michael's a an international attorney with the law firm Shepherd Mullen and also is a constitutional law professor. And we're delighted to have you join us today, Michael. Uh, it's delighted to, I'm delighted to be with you both. Uh, good morning, Mitch and Stephen. And, uh, Hi, Michael. How are you? So uh, doing well. I hope you are as, as well. Yes, thank you. Well, Michael, we gave a brief introduction that of, of how we got here. We bridged the 293-day gap very quickly, and then we've moved on. And now we have... Neil Gorsuch, we were talking just a bit about some of the housekeeping duties that the most junior justice has to do. Uh, but what we're going to want to move into, and we're delighted you're here to help us with, is to talk about 
uh, how is this going to change the complexity of the court? And, and first of all, help because you follow these things. Help us understand. Do you think very many of the four four cases that have been heard but not reported might be called back to the court for argument again? It, 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 that's hard to tell. Um, it, it, they, they could be. Um, uh, it will entirely depend on the votes for cert, and uh, they they would be there one one way or the other. So tell everybody what's a vote for cert. Uh, of course, uh, the the Supreme Court um, appeal process is discretionary. So the uh, court takes cases at its discretion on appeal from the circuit court, which is the general appellate court in the federal system. And it does that by a process called a writ of certiorari, and uh, shorthand for that is a cert petition, which is in essence just the petition to the Supreme Court to seek review and tell the court why the court should review the case. And those cert petitions take votes uh, for justices uh, to be placed on the docket. And Michael, in the intro, we talked about the uh, the initial gathering uh, by the justices where they sit in conference and vote on cases under review. And I think I shared in the intro that there is a requirement that four of them must agree to take a case. What's your take on on uh, Justice Gar- or Justice uh, Gorsuch's uh, role in that process? He'll have a role. Everybody does. Uh, it's an equal role. It can be any four justices and. You know, we talk about change on the court with Justice Gorsuch, but ironically, because he's replacing Justice Scalia, there's really no change in the in the political ideology of the court. Most folks think Justice Gorsuch is uh, not only uh, an extraordinarily high caliber judge and completely qualified for the court, as I heard you all mention earlier, um, but his political leanings and his judicial leanings, more importantly are very in line with the justice he's replacing. So the court isn't uh, potentially isn't changing from where it was before Justice Scalia's untimely death. Okay, so he does have a seat at that initial review to decide whether a case should be heard. He does. Okay, great. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. It, uh, I, he strikes me as someone who's going to balance both, and I say this only from watching the hearings and reading about him, but he strikes me as someone who's going to not just come in like a bull in a china shop, that he's going to be very respectful of the other justices. He's going to listen and learn, but I also suspect that he is not going to waste one second uh, from a judicial standpoint of jumping into bringing his opinions into the into these cases. That's the sense I get too, Mitch. You know, he, he's a solid judge with a good foundation in human experience and life. And at the end of the day, uh, it is that experience, that American experience, in fact, that governs uh, how the judiciary decides cases because the law is based on our experience. Well, you know, we're, we are coming up on our first break, Michael and Mitch, and I think uh, we should probably set the table a little bit, if we can, briefly about the potential cases that are coming up to be heard because uh, there will be significant cases heard, and I'm, I'd imagine that the justices will get to work right away because I think oral arguments are scheduled for several cases. Uh, and, Michael, we, we want to hear your, your take on some of those cases and maybe get into the topic of 
uh, the background facts on some of those cases. So when we return, let's expand on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We are at full strength here now. Professor Michael Cohen has joined us, and we're talking about Supreme Court cases and the addition of Justice uh, Gorsuch. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we're talking about the Supreme Court, which is now at full strength with the addition of Justice Garland, or sorry, uh, Justice Gorsuch. We talked about <laughs> I'm going to play these mistakes this- back to you, Stephen, every time you said... I- Justice Garland. I, I know. know. I'm sorry, Mitch. It was your intro that got me thinking about that. Okay. Can it you imagine? Can you all imagine if somebody made that um, that very easy sort of mind association slip 
and their first appearance before the court in oral oh. argument when Justice Gorsuch asks a question, given the G, <laughs> Justice Garland, I mean, the political statement, the First Amendment uh, uh, expression, and, and that perhaps erroneous, you know, just even accidental slip, could oh, be God. monumental front page so, in the New York Times and Washington Post. So, you know, your propensity, Stephen, to be in the news, <laughs> here goes with you everywhere. You know, Mike, I, I will say, I was Fourteen months we talked about Merrick Garland. It's a little hard to get him out of our mind. I know, I know. And I wasn't trying to be the foil there. Mitch's intro got me thinking about that. So with the addition of uh, Justice Gorsuch, there are significant cases or a number of cases, Michael, that I think you've identified as being really significant as they relate to his wisdom and his additional thought process. And let's let's talk about some of those cases, including one that I think is up for cert petition or petition for cert. Yeah. In fact, we might want to start with that one uh, to carry on from your last question, uh, which was about D- Justice Gorsuch's role in the, the cert process. Um, because there has been a case that has been considered for uh, on a certiorari petition for for uh, what I would say is a, a strangely long time. The case is called Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And what happened in the underlying case is that a Colorado baker from the Colorado uh, a Colorado baker uh, refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And the same-sex couple um, sued uh, under the Colorado anti-discrimination statute. Um, and that case uh, went all the way up to the um, uh, through, through the Colorado uh, process. Uh, uh, and the Colorado Court of Appeals found a violation of the state discrimination laws. Um, it is now all the way up through um, on appeal to the Supreme Court on a cert petition and um, uh, there's a real question as to um, uh, where this will go, given Justice Gorsuch's addition to the Supreme Court, um, and whether or not he will find that, or even uh, rule in favor that the petitioner um, uh, and the law violates re- religious liberty. So, Michael, a quick let me just a quick insert, just for the non-lawyers in the group. The sure. fact that he's from Colorado really doesn't matter because he was a federal judge, and right. the case you just discussed didn't that come that came up through the state state court system, correct? It did. It did. And the and the issue in the case is whether you know, absolutely right, Mitch. Very good point. And. Uh, as all all points are, and the, the issue in the case is whether the Colorado baker has the First Amendment right through his religious liberty to refuse to bake a cake for a same-sex couple on grounds that he doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. Um, and Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurring opinion in a case called Burwell versus Hobby Lobby Stores that when he was at the Tenth Circuit, the federal uh, appellate court um, sitting in Colorado. And in that case, you know, he voted in favor of employers who wished to opt out of the uh, uh, contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act based on similar grounds. So there is some intuition amongst folks reading tea leaves that Justice Gorsuch in this case would hold 
that the baker could privately discriminate against a same-sex couple refused to bake a cake for them based on the baker's religious liberty um, without apparent regard to how that would feel. Uh, Michael, let me ask you, is, if I, do I remember correctly that this was the case where it, it, it gets brought into the court and becomes a question of state action because they had a business license? And is that the, the vehicle by which someone say, well, if you want to bake cakes privately, individually, in a non-commercial manner, you can do whatever you want, you can say whatever you want, you can exercise your right of free speech and religion, but if you want a commercial business license, you then have certain restrictions as a business, and that the this, if, if I remember that correctly, that then sets that same argument that came up in Hobby Lobby of does a business have the same constitutional rights as an individual, or have I conflated that? As they as they say on the north side of the Monterey Bay, Mitch, r- right on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> hey, that was good, Michael. So yeah, that's the that's the nexus between the so-called government action or some kind of a connection that gives rise to the the claim, right, Michael? That's right. That that that's precisely right. And you know, of, of course, on, on the other side of that, from the equal protection element in the Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution's protections. Um, uh, against discrimination generally, uh, you know, imagine uh, a, a, a citizen, you know, imagine walking down the street in a line of businesses and walking into a cake shop that you just adore and uh, excited about, about your marriage and uh, asking for a cake and, and having them say no. H- how must that feel? Does that feel like state action? Does that feel like public discrimination? Does that feel like you are a citizen with equal protection under the laws of this nation. It's a fascinating case, and uh, it, it stands to be uh, one uh, uh, that, that, if taken, could be a, a landmark decision. And, Mike, your, your reference to uh, Justice Gorsuch's knowledge and uh, history of working with similar issues, you mentioned Hobby Lobby. Um, I gather your point there was that he's well-versed on the topics that are likely to have crossover application. I, I, you, you may have also tipped your hand that he's likely to, or were you tipping your hand that you predicted that he would come down in favor of the business owner or just that he's got the bandwidth intellectually by virtue of the Hobby Lobby exposure? Uh, I think both, Stephen. Both, I, yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I think, he, I think you're absolutely right in my uh, usual uh, uh, too geeky way of getting closer to the law than the, than the, than the, uh, the, the bigger picture uh, warrants. Um, he has experience with a case uh, and 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 wrote a concurring opinion, not the majority opinion, but the c- a concurrence with the majority opinion in a case that reveal a, a leaning where he very well may um, uh, you know uh, go with the Baker and the uh, free exercise um, notions uh, r- rather than the couple uh, and the equal protection of the law notions. And you know, the cases that pit these things together are uh, quite extraordinary and also even more interesting in the current climate given the uh, fundamental rights at stake um, with respect to uh, uh, same-sex issues uh, from uh, recent decisions by the court. 
Yeah, Michael, am I going too far on this by saying that yeah, I was, as I was reading some of Gorsuch's testimony, he he's claims that he's a textualist similar to Scalia, which he wants to read the exact words of the Constitution and try to apply them, and and he reinforced that you know that when you have equal protection for all individuals, he believes that, and he believes he's going to apply it from that basis, but what. What gets me thinking beyond just that, what seems like a pretty straightforward statement, is when you add Hobby Lobby in, and then it sounds like we're going to get back into some campaign finance uh, issues in this term as well, we've extended the concept of who's entitled to constitutional rights, and in each of those what seem like disparate cases, and this as well, you've got a corporation alleging that they've got constitutional rights. So one, it's a corporation with a business license that says it still has a constitutional right under freedom of religion. And Hobby Lobby, it said the same thing. For corporations that want to give money to campaigns, they're saying the same thing. So doesn't this go... Am I going too far in saying that I think this may be opening a door to to additional discussion of how we're going to define who gets a constitutional right? No, you're not. You're not going too far at all. And you know that this is this is really, um, you know, a politics aside. The the textualist nature of Supreme Court uh, ju- judiciary philosophy, uh, although certainly valid um, in 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 many ways and important in in many instances, uh, you know, also has to always be caged around the context that at the time these words were written. People had slaves. <laughs> um, the, 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 not everybody could vote. The, the nation was far from the experience that we have evolved into to this day. So to apply textualist interpretations can be uh, dangerous from a judicial philosophical standpoint in the 21st century uh, to a whole set of people who have worked very, very hard for uh, constitutional rights and equal treatment, not just in the past 10 years or the new millennium, but over the past 250 plus years of this nation's history. So, so Michael, that's, let's transition now into a couple of the other cases, because I think you've set the table really well as to the, the type of things we should be carefully listening to with with Neil Gorsuch, as well as the way he writes. He's supposed to be an excellent writer, superb writer, so we, we'll look forward to that. Uh, but what other cases are coming up where you think these these issues will be influenced? Yeah, another really interesting case is the uh, th- that will be coming up where Justice Gorsuch could make a difference, Mitch, is the Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Comer case. Uh, in, in, in a nine-justice court, we'll now hear this case, um, this has been a closely watched uh, a case um, uh, over the years. It involves a, a Missouri grant program, which provides recycled tires uh, to schools for resurfacing playgrounds. Um, and uh, under that program, a Lutheran church in Miss- Missouri um, applied for public money uh, to resurface its playground with the recycled rubber tires. Um, and uh, was denied um, uh, th- that on on grounds that um, uh, it would be an establishment of of religion and would violate the establishment clause, uh, which in, is a clause that precludes state sponsored or uh, government sponsored and uh, certain entanglements with with religion or particular religious organizations or any religious organizations really. 
Um, and this case is not one that's up for cert. This case will be heard by by the full court. Um, and uh, folks think that this will be, um, uh, many folks think this will be a very, very, very close decision and that Justice Gorsuch's vote uh, could be um, the deciding vote uh, in, in the case. So, Michael, this is a case that's actually poised or set for oral argument. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And so the the framed issues here are going to be, as you indicated, the establishment clause, which is really going to focus on whether or not the the grant program, as you've described, is or can be interpreted as tantamount to uh, favoring religion. Is that the spirit behind the argument? Yeah, generally speaking, Stephen, that's right. This is not absolute by any means, and it's fact it's so not absolute. I, I hate, I, I, I shy away from even making the categorization, but I'm going to. <laughs> generally speaking, um, the, the left of the court, if you will, um, the left-leaning uh, judiciary of the court, which uh, is the four-justice constituency now. Um, really favors the state in these types of establishment clauses, cases. Um, and um, the right of the court um, usually favors the, or typically favors the church in these establishment clause cases. And the establishment clause cases as a whole involve, for the most part, government programs and uh, assistance of religious organizations, even to the extent of permitting uh, religious organizations to hold meetings in public spaces and those types of things. Um, so the the tea leaves here, in the uh, 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 the tea the tea leaves here are that Justice Gorsuch may in fact favor the church, and that the church may get its playground. Michael, let me put you on hold on that topic because we are coming up on a break, uh, but I think it's a fascinating discussion to continue. Uh, We'll expand upon some of the cases that are likely set for oral argument when we come back from the next break. We've just talked about Trinity Lutheran Church. When we come back, we will continue that discussion. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about the Supreme Court with the new edition of Justice Gorsuch. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties 
and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about the Supreme Court and specifically cases that are likely set for oral argument. Professor Michael Cohen has joined us for this discussion. And when we uh, left off during the break or before the break, we were talking about Trinity Lutheran Church, Michael and Mitch, and the discussion of the Establishment Clause came up. And Michael, you had referenced previously that uh, Justice Gorsuch may be bringing significant wisdom to the court because of his exposure and experience in the Hobby Lobby case. And let's talk about um, how his addition and his uh, contributions in Trinity Lutheran Church may play out and introduce the idea of free exercise of religion, which is another significant issue. Sure, Stephen. So in in Hobby Lobby, which again was the core, the case that allowed uh, businesses to opt out of the mandatory contraceptive provisions of the Affordable Care Act, um, um, uh, based on free exercise grounds, was was a as you say, Stephen, a free exercise of religion case. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution has two very distinct religious freedoms that are uh, extraordinarily uh, you know different first is the free exercise uh, the, the, the gov- you know the government no law shall prohibit the free exercise of religion and this law or this protection exists to ensure that uh, people of all faiths have the freedom to openly um, associate and exercise their faith. They don't have to do it in secret, in fear of persecution. Um, the, the second religious freedom that the United States Constitution confers on uh, the American public is an establishment clause freedom. And this is a very different freedom and a very interesting one because there are plenty of uh, libertarian nations around the world in 
the East and the West, that have established religions. But in America, the government cannot establish a religion. The government, um, and, and that over time, that has been interpreted to uh, uh, all types of, of cases where the government gets entangled with a religious organization and, and either can or cannot support that religious organization in some way. And, you know, Mike, let me, if I can interrupt just briefly and just add this. I think if you look historically at the Establishment Clause cases, something as innocuous as tacit endorsement of a certain religion has actually been a significant showing for Establishment Clause purposes, right? I mean, it's a pretty, pretty low bar, isn't it? It is. And, you know, and there are many people in this nation that, that say, for example, or feel that we're a Christian nation. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, the nation was designed not to be. The nation was designed to be an anything nation, and that was critically different. And that is critically different than, say, Stephen, the United Kingdom, where the, where the government and, in fact, the courts in the United Kingdom are the final arbiter for, for the Church of England. Uh, you know, so it, let me throw in, uh, as, as all constitutional law issues, they get complicated. But here you have the case, if I, if I read this correctly, that Trinity Lutheran Church has opted out of their own choice to incorporate themselves as a religious organization, not as a regular corporation, and by doing so as a religious nonprofit, take advantage of federal and state tax breaks, government, gov another federal law issue, but they want to opt out of being able to pay their taxes as by designating self-designating themselves as a religious organization but they want to opt in to a government program that says that they should get rubber tire pellets for their playground i mean it would seem that this is going to require a more narrow tailoring of a decision than something as broad as the Hobby Lobby, which was a First Amendment freedom of speech or freedom of religion case. That's right, Mitch. And, and indeed, the, you know, the tea leaves and the reading of Justice Gorsuch on the free exercise of the, of the First Amendment is really not related in any way to how he may rule in an Establishment Clause case. It would be perfectly, uh, it, it, it would not be surprising uh, to see a new justice or any justice like Justice Gorsuch um, feel very strongly about free exercise and 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 somebody's um, you know true b beliefs and the freedom to exercise those beliefs, and 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 view and view the the establishment side very very strictly, um, uh, you know to the to the degree that 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 Stephen mentioned earlier, uh, almost no state support for religious organizations and. You know, particularly one who has indeed opted for all of the benefits of uh, an established religious organization and, and now wants to avail themselves of the public tax money uh, that has uh, been paid in and, and secular uh, set aside for secular activity. Michael, uh, let me see if I, if I got it right. So it, it's sounding as if there is a possibility that Justice Gorsuch would be what I'll call intractable on the establishment clause issue but perhaps more flexible on free exercise. I just got it backwards. I, 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 that exact thing. Oh, I did I reverse it? I'm sorry. Reversed. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Bad uh, enough that you called him Garland. Now you're going to have him reversed on one of his fundamental principles. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I reversed that. <laughs> uh, and, and Michael, let me ask one other thing. Is, while is, we're, exactly. Is, 
Sorry. There's so, so many things to talk about here, but I, I want to get one more thing in because you've just triggered that thought of that. See, I think we're not going to be able to predict uh, Gorsuch's decisions on a lot of these things. You point out very well that you know, it's a narrow body of, of writing and there are many things that he has yet to decide on. But for example, let me just throw out one that Stephen and I talked about recently, Sanctuary Cities. Uh, I think most people would be surprised that, that I think when you read his prior leanings as a textualist, as an originalist, that he, like Scalia, is, if that comes up to the Supreme Court, is very likely to be in favor of sanctuary cities because he believes strictly uh, in, the stri- in the restriction of the federal government unless those rights are granted in the Constitution. And many of us think that what an attempt to limit state cities counties by the federal government exceeds those rights that were given in the constitution yeah you know it's it's a fascinating issue and and i agree with you in many ways uh, in all ways uh, you know first of all let me just say fundamentally i completely share your view mitch that predicting the decisions of the uh, you know nine fascinating uh, highly uh, focused and engaged individuals in uh, the Article Three constitutional branch of our government is an impossible exercise, just as, you know, predicting what will happen in the next minute is an impossible exercise. And the justices often surprise us in their unanimity, their, uh, the, the, in other words, their votes together, <laughs> in case I said too many ends in that word, um, as well as their, their switching back and forth. There are some very fascinating uh, uh, sort of pairings on the court over time historically in, in these issues. And none of them are more fascinating to me than in the issue that you just described, which is the federalist uh, structure of our government, which includes states as well as a, a supreme federal body. The Constitution gave to the federal government enumerated powers, and those that were not enumerated were reserved to the states by the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution expressly, and actually, even without the Tenth Amendment, fundamentally in the structure of our government. And states played important roles in the history of the development of this nation. They stood close to the people. They had great differences in how they approached liberties. And in fact, you know, our first, our, our whole Bill of Rights actually came from states which had those Bill of Rights built into their own constitutions. Um, and oftentimes, judges can be very pro states' rights, very pro Tenth Amendment, very pro. Uh, a federal a federal structure of government that respects the boundaries of states, even if they are right-leaning judges. They often come from states. Justice O'Connor from Arizona being chief among them. She was such a proponent and champion of states' rights and the ability for states to be laboratories for the people and gauges of what the people want. And in these issues of sanctuary cities, that's what you're talking about. The, the, the sanctuary cities and the laws around them aren't saying we're, we're going to violate federal laws. What they're saying is we're not going to devote our state resources to enforcing federal laws. We're not going to lend assistance in our states uh, with our state police and our state jails and our state uh, institutions to support uh, these particular federal policies. 
um, and it, it, it is a it is a an issue where you could easily find a, a right leaning judge feeling very strongly about the state's autonomy over its own police powers and its own uh, powers reserved to it under the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. Yeah, I look forward to that issue coming forward, and I suspect we are going to see that at the court. Let me ask you one other thing that's a little off track from the specific cases. Oh, one, just one, to, one, oh, one, go one, ahead. Mitch, before that, remember, Gorsuch also was in Colorado, right? which was one of the first cases, states, to, to flub its nose at the federal government, actually even well ahead of California in this regard, um, uh, with respect to marijuana being a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a subject uh, we definitely were going to come back to on another show. <laughs> but let me ask you this. We've talked about this briefly before, uh, and it's not something that gets written about much, but uh, as the Chief Justice... Roberts has become known as someone who likes to have uh, a lot of agreement among the justices. He, I, he gives us the impression of someone who spends a lot of time behind the scenes negotiating the decisions rather than just having uh, these rabid clashes of ideology. Right. It would seem to me that Gorsuch will fit very well into that system and that that might mediate some of the sharper points as he blends in. What do you think? You know, I, it's, a, it's a, such a wonderful um, topic to think about uh, because in the current climate in our new millennium of government, politics is just so divisive and divergent. But the court is not. And, and it, it, is, it is a branch of government that has to protect its own power the power of the judiciary from the other two branches of government as much as anything. And that seems to historically have bring them, bring them together differently over time. Justice Roberts, to me, is one of the most fascinating uh, historical figures in my lifetime in the sense that I, I, I get the feeling, and I don't, I don't know anything, um, let alone anything about what I'm about to say, but it is a feeling uh, for, studied and informed from his decisions that he is like Justice Marshall, the, the, the first justice of the Supreme Court to, uh, in essence, define the court's power, in that he appreciates the court's role, understands it, uh, 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 and views it differently and not politically, and uh, works strategically uh, to uh, not only uh, achieve what he feels are the right goals, but also understands that he is deciding things and leading at least uh, uh, a branch of government that is equal to the president and Congress. It has a very defined role, but uh, you know has a special, uh, also a very special place and role in American society. I do share your your potential instinct, Mitch, that. Um, Mr. Gorsuch may very well fit that same personality. Uh, well, Michael, pardon the interruption because I know I'm noting the prompts here. We are coming up to the the end of the segment, and there's other cases that we could have taken on. The NLRB case, the class action waiver case, there's an immigration case that's also up for oral argument, and we can return to those hopefully at another session. Sure. Uh, this has been a great discussion because we've uh, had a great opportunity to talk about the addition of Justice Gorsuch and what he brings to the court and look forward to expanding upon future cases. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stephen. 
Uh, as we remind everyone, you can hear an archive of today's program at wagnerwinnick.com and Voice America Business Channel, as we suggest to you every week. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.